My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. thing has been such a challenge for us. Um, I, I often forget it. I don't enjoy it. Uh, my wife and I went to Costco, which you need a mask to get in, but we found these, uh, these masks, and these are like my favorite masks. They don't really work well for recording, but this is a great mask. I've had the white ones. I've had the surgical ones, and they kind of, you know, they're easy to fit in your pocket. But recently, I found the mask above all masks, and I almost hesitate to show it to you uh, because it'll just stir up jealousy inside of you, uh, envy and covetousness and all the things the Bible s- says we're not supposed to be a part is going to show up, and, and the jealousy is going to be so much, you're probably going to track me down to get one of these, but they're really hard to come by. These masks are rare. In fact, there's only one place where you actually see these masks, and um, I picked up one the other day. I was on a flight, and I just reached up, and I grabbed it. No, actually, uh, I ordered this. This is the mask above all masks. This is awesome. Uh, you, you know what this mask is all about, right? Uh, I, one of these days, I, w- I want to just put this on and uh, go into Costco and see if uh, they'll let me in. Um, this is a cool mask. Now, you know, you know where this mask shows up from. You know this uh, comes when you're on an airplane. I was just on an airplane with my wife and I. We're flying from Denver uh, back here at home, and we were with a, a bunch of leaders and I heard the spiel again. If you've been on a plane, you know the spiel. Uh, they go through and they talk about the exits, and the exit closest to you might be behind you. And then they talk about, uh, just in case you haven't been driving since 1966, how to put a seatbelt on and how to take it off. Uh, but then they get to this point in the presentation, the flight attendant, he or she begins to talk about the mask. And I, I thought about this a lot, and I thought about the very first thing they say. They, they begin with this statement, in the unlikely event, I like that. In the unlikely event, uh, you know, because I really want that to be unlikely, right? My wife and I were flying years ago from Kauai to Oahu uh, for a, a journey. We're coming back home. And as we're starting to land in Oahu at the airport there, uh, I'm a pretty observant guy. I'm looking out the window and I noticed that we're circling the tower. And so I nudged my wife and I said, babe, I think something's wrong. Uh, we're not supposed to be flying around like this. And sure enough, within a couple minutes, the captain came on the, uh, the speaker and said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have a, fl- a problem uh, with the landing gear, 
and uh, the light has not gone on to indicate that the front landing gear is locked in position. Uh, j- just in case you wonder, I love landing gear. <laughs> I like landing gear. You can put like hundreds of landing gear on planes. I'm a fan of landing gear, especially that front one. That nose one is really important. And he said, the light didn't come on, so we're not sure if it's down, so we're going to buzz the tower. And by this moment, everybody's quiet on the plane. It's like, okay, this is an intense, unlikely event. And so as, as uh, we buzz the tower, the captain comes back on and says, well, uh, the landing gear is down. We're just not sure if it's locked in position. That might be why the light's not on. So we're going to just circle more. We're going to burn more fuel just in case. Uh, in our landing, we happen to uh, crash, which, you know, <laughs> it's not something you want to hear on an airplane because that unlikely event showed up that day. And so we finally land, and as we're starting to land, I see the trucks on the tarmac, the, uh, the foam trucks, the fire trucks, and uh, then they say these words. I'll, I'll never forget this. They said, assume the crash position. Okay, an unlikely event showed up in our life, and we assumed the crash position. Every, I mean, it's like the oxygen had gotten sucked out of the room, and as soon as we land, everything was fine, and everybody just shouts out. I, we're like kissing one another. I think we're exchanging addresses for writing cards and letters for every Christmas afterwards, but it was an amazing event. In the unlikely event, this year has been, out of all of our lives, the most unlikely event possible with um, all, of, all of the stuff that's gone on with COVID, with racism and politics. I mean, masks are dropping out of the ceiling for you and for me. But you get to that one point in the presentation, that's the reason I have this mask, is that the flight attendant will say these very important words, that when this drops out from the ceiling, pull it down, and they say, secure your own mask first. Put your own mask on first. Now, I I know they did not say that for men, because we're selfish pigs, and we'll just you know, do that. Uh, They said it for moms. I know that because uh, undoubtedly there's a story of a mom when masks first dropped out of the ceiling who did not care about their own needs and cared for their children to their own detriment. In fact, one of the times I was sharing this, I just got back from uh, touring through Alaska and Washington and Idaho and Oregon and, and Montana And I've been sharing this talk, this soul care talk with pastors. And when I was up in West Seattle, a gal said, ooh, I'm a flight attendant for Alaska. And I asked her the question. She said, yeah, the story is true. There was a mom who did not put her mask on first, and she passed out. Now, what would that be like to be so focused on serving other people to where you stop thinking about yourself, to where that actually leads to your detriment, to where you don't have any more oxygen to breathe? Because, you know, it'll be flowing into the bag, but it might not inflate and you might not recognize it. Friends, I would say that you and I are in such an unlikely event right now. And today I want to deviate a little bit from 1 Peter. In fact, I just want to take a side road. And I want to talk about soul care. It's it's a very important week in our nation. Uh, I was talking with some, some leaders and they said this could probably be the most important election in 40 years. I don't know where they stand on that, but that's a pretty significant statement. I know that um, with all that's happening in our world today, with the rise of COVID cases around the world, even here in Oregon, there's a likelihood that things are not going to go the way we would like. And the reality is, is if we don't stop as followers of Jesus Christ to put our own mask on first, to attend to the depths of our soul, we're going to struggle. In fact, we're going to struggle to the point that we might not be of any good, of any use anymore because we might have blown up our lives because we weren't able to handle the unlikely event. 
So I've been traveling around 247 churches in these states, and I've been talking with pastors and having meals and, and times with them and talking about the idea of our soul. And I, I usually get a whiteboard out for this, and there's usually people in the room, so this is not going to work that way. So I kind of want to share what I talk about. The first thing I talk about is the idea of a struggling soul. You know, when your soul is not well, think about the inner person, the inner person, your soul. And when things are not well, what begins to emerge in your life or, or the life of a person that's not attending to the needs of their soul. What does it look like? Here's a couple of the responses that I've been regularly receiving. The first one is anger. In fact, anger always shows up one, two, or three. In any group of pastors, in any group of leaders, anger is in that top one, two, or three. It could be explosive anger. Usually it's frustration anger, that low level irritation anger. When our soul is not well, we express it with anger. Anxiety, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety today in our world. Shame, Apathy, exhaustion, people just exhausted. I talked to pastors over and over again in the first two or three months of COVID when everything shut down. It's like we had no people in the room, but we were working two jobs, it felt like. We were working overtime to figure out how this works. Lack of confidence. Friends, nobody likes to talk in front of a camera. And if they do, they should be in Hollywood. I can't stand this. I wish we could be together again. I wish we could just open up our doors. I wish it weren't the way it is. And none of us feel confident doing what we're doing. Uh, Isolation, oh, it's so easy to withdraw. Depression, sinful attraction. What what is it about sin that looks even better when our soul is not well? Loss of vision, compassion fatigue, loss of desire for God. When our soul is not being attended to and we're struggling inside, we can't just keep this inside. It comes out. But on the other hand, if we are attending to our soul, if we are doing well in our soul, what does that look like? What does a satisfied soul look like? What does a soul look like that's not just abiding in Christ, but abounding in that love of Christ? Well, there's, well, you know what it is. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's love, it's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's literally what the Bible says will happen when we spend time with the Spirit. When we walk in His steps, compassion, grace, generosity, this this beautiful idea of discernment and creativity and vision and focus. I know this, as as your pastor, and, and I've been your pastor for all these years, I'll just say this, that when things are good in my soul, man, God speaks in amazing ways. And when I'm not attending to my soul, I can look good on the outside for a while, what eventually comes out is stuff that should not reflect the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ. You know that, and I know that. Now, I don't know if you've stopped to think about this in your life recently and the external circumstances of what's going on. Um, maybe you yell at the TV or the internet. Maybe you're frustrated with what's on Facebook and social media. Maybe you think about people in your life that are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to COVID or race or when it comes to things like um, just politics, when it comes to religion, your faith. And there are probably people, I know there are people in your life that irritate you. There are probably people in your life that frustrate you and that are are, um, really annoying. There are probably people in your life that are difficult, that are uh, defiant, maybe obstinate, stubborn, rebellious, right? In fact, just take a moment to close your eyes and think about that person 
You know, that, that, that most obnoxious person that you have to deal with. It could be at work. It could be at home. Who knows? It could be in your family. It could be in your neighborhood. It could be, you know, just someone that you're in a circle with. And you're always at odds with that person. And you're frustrated by them. Now, as you think about them and you see them in your mind, I just, I just want you to open your eyes and I want to tell you something. They're not the most difficult person you'll ever have to deal with. In fact, the most challenging person you ever have to deal with is yourself. The hardest person you're ever going to have to lead is yourself. Because the Bible says all of us are broken. All of us are sinful. All of us struggle. And in our nation that's broken, in our nation that's sinful, and in our nation that's struggling, I think what God wants from you and from me as followers of Jesus is to look in the mirror and realize that that person needs to change. And if we change, then our community can change and our nation can change. I want to take a look at a, just a, a beautiful little verse. It's uh, in the book of 3 John, which is just a one-chapter letter. It's 3 John, verse 2. And um, it, it, it says this, uh, John, uh, the apostle John, the one that wrote Revelation and the, the Gospel of John and First, Second, Third John, he's writing to his friend Gaius, and he's trying to encourage him. He says, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along. Now, the reason why that grabs me, and I highlighted it for you, is that John, in thinking about his friend Gaius, he's thinking about the two parts of Gaius's life, the outside life and the inside life. He says, I pray that your body's good, that everything's going well with you as far as health and everything. That's a good thing, right? Uh, but I also think about your inside, your soul, and I pray that your soul is going well in your life. So friends, you have an outer life and you have an inner life. The outer life is what everybody sees. Uh, when you go to the doctor, uh, when you get checked out, um, they'll look at you, they'll weigh you, they'll take a look at your outside life, and, but yet maybe they might do some internal work too and look at your inside life. They'll uh, put you through a scan or an x-ray or they'll put a stethoscope up to your heart or your chest. They'll ask you to breathe and they'll listen for things because they're listening for the inside. And you and I have an outside life we have an inside life. And what really matters, according to God, is that the life flows from the inside out. And what we're on the outside is not just a facade of what's on the inside. And what would it look like for God even now, during this message, uh, to run an x-ray, to run a scan, to put a stethoscope up to you, to find out what's on the inside of your life, to listen? What would it be like if you were to do that yourself? And spend some time, even this week, contemplating your inner world. For most people, though, even followers of Jesus, the inner world is not something we consider a lot. Because the whole life that we live is all external, right? I mean, our life is made up of our relationships and our responsibilities. And the, re the relationships we have and the responsibilities we have, who we spend our life with and what we do, that pretty much defines us. That's, that's all you ask when you get to know a person, right? In fact, many friendships never go beyond that. But there's such a deeper life than just that. There's an identity that's deeper than that. I, I want to use the illustration uh, that we have here on the platform at Sunrise. Uh, I'll call it a stage. We have a stage. And uh, we've had some productions on there. We've had some choirs. We've had some big things. On any given weekend, we have a worship team up here. And the front stage looks pretty good. Uh, Pastor Aaron and team, they spent a lot of time thinking about the front. The front stage that everybody sees, it's clean. 
Um, maybe when they're practicing, they've got water bottles or coffee, but they clean that up. Uh, we focus the lights on the back. We make sure that everything looks good. Everything's in their place. We even make sure the drummer looks good. We work extra hard on drummers. And they're so challenging. And um, we put everything together on the front stage, and we light it so well. And it's such a beautiful thing. And you have a front stage of your life that everybody sees, something that everybody's aware of. You put a lot of work on. You fix up. You present to people. And it's not a bad thing. It's who we are. It's what we do. But you may not know this, but we actually have a backstage here as well. And the backstage is behind those curtains. And behind the stage, there's not a lot of light. Uh, There's not a lot of clean things back there. There might be some pizza from a couple weeks ago. Um, There's probably, uh, you know, a mess back there. Usually there's papers on the ground. There are pieces of furniture, equipment from staging that we've put there. Because we don't really care about the backstage. Because the backstage is where all this activity happens But we just walk from there through the curtain to the front stage. And in the same way, you and I have a backstage to our life. Nobody else sees it but you and God. Maybe some friends, maybe a marriage partner, close person to you. They know what the backstage is like. But for the most part, you don't present your backstage. You don't turn the lights on on the backstage. Because it's the backstage. Nobody cares about it. The reality, though, is the backstage is really who you are and who I am. It may not show up immediately, but it does ultimately. The biblical word for backstage would be your soul, would be the inner person that God is working on. It's your interior life. Might be messy right now. You might have it off limits to other people. Um, Might be dark right now. But God is concerned about the backstage of your life, the inner person. We're really comfortable with conversations that relate to the front stage. I know that. I mean, you talk to people. You don't even have to know them. Meet people brand new. What do you talk about? Front stage stuff. Weather, sports, hobbies, jobs, home, children, traffic. You talk about traffic, right? It's easy to talk about front stage stuff. But do you have anybody that you invite to the backstage of your life? That they have the freedom to wander through the dark recesses? Do you have anybody that you trust to come to the backstage? Anybody that could stop and just ask you, how are you doing, really? I mean, how's your soul? The Apostle Paul, he adds to this idea in Ephesians 3.16 when he writes this. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, being God, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is the inside of you. This is the soul part of you. We all have a physical side, that's the external, but we have an internal side, a spiritual side of us, a soul, the heart, the mind, the stuff that people can't always see. It does eventually work its way out, but it's stuff that's hidden. It's stuff that only an x-ray or stethoscope can reveal. I've been reading a great book about John Wesley, and his method of disciple making is pretty phenomenal because he started the Methodist church with his method. And so Wesley was one of the great... uh, evangelical preachers, he and George Whitfield, they uh, took the whole stage by storm when in Europe and colonial America, they preached these open-air revivals. It was pretty amazing. Uh, but what Wesley did was amazing because he started these classes, these groups, and he started a method that did far more in the long run than Whitfield, uh, even though Whitfield reached more people. But what he did, Wesley was, was so good about gathering people week by week 
He called them classes. This book talks about his discipleship method. And what I was struck by was that he has a series of questions that every time they would meet, every week the class or the group would meet, and they would come together and they would evaluate their lives, their activity, and they're really good questions. But the first question that everybody would ask every week is this, how is it with your soul? That is not a question we talk about in America today. It's not even a question we talk about in church. When you greet someone, maybe you're going to be here this weekend, you're going to show up at the parking lot, you're going to say hi to people, I'll be welcoming you out front, you'll say hi to someone in the foyer, you'll see some people you know, you'll come and sit down, you'll, you'll participate in the service, you'll leave. I doubt any of us will look at a person and the first thing we'll think of and the first thing we'll express with a question is, how are you doing really? That's kind of threatening, right? We'd rather just talk about the weather, about the World Series, right? How's your soul, is what Wesley would ask us. We spend so much of our time fixing up our outer person, feeding it, exercising it, dressing it up, cleaning it, washing it. But the reality is, is that I don't think a lot of us, even followers of Christ, do that amount of work on our interior world. Dallas Willard wrote a great number of books, but this renovation of the heart, he said this, our soul This inner world, I love this. Our soul is like a stream of water. Now think about that. A stream of water which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other area of our life. So our soul is like a fountain that flows out of us, right? And it gives everything else purpose in being. When that stream is as it should be, we are constantly refreshed and exuberant in all we do. And I would add, if I could ever add anything to anything Dallas Willard said, is that we're now refreshing others on the journey. That your soul is a living stream that flows out of you, that defines you, that gives you purpose. And I believe actually changes every room you walk into, every relationship you have, every conversation you have. It's up to you, though, to tend to the soul and the stream of the soul so that what flows out in conversation, on social media, in all of life is honoring to God and refreshing to other people. It's life-changing. I like sailing. I used to do sailing in high school. And uh, I want to tell you the story of a, of a sailor named Michael Plant. Here's a, a picture of him on his ship, the Coyote, in the early 90s, a world-class world sailor. Uh, this man was amazing. Uh, he had sailed the world over three times, 100,000 miles of open sea he'd logged on his own as a solo sailor. And in 1992, he bought a ship, named it the Coyote, this boat, and he wanted to sail it in a special race that was going off the coast of France. And so he decided to leave New York Harbor and sail across the Atlantic as kind of a training to get ready for that. And as he left New York, his friends you know, were able to radio him and he was able to have constant communication. But about day 11, the communication stopped. And his friends weren't too worried about it because he would go days without communication because he was busy, you know, focusing on, you know, getting across the Atlantic Ocean for one, but on all that it would take to get there. As a solo sailor, it's a lot to do this. And as the days went by, they got worried and they sent search party after search party out. They didn't find anything until day 32, a Greek tanker crossing the icy northern Atlantic saw the bottom of the coyote upside down, floating on the surface of the water. 
And as they sent search parties, dive teams, they noticed something was incredibly odd they hadn't seen before, they'd never seen. And that was that the mast, which is 85 feet long, 85 feet, if you're in the auditorium right now, from floor to ceiling is 23 feet. Triple that plus 85 foot tall mast was fully rigged. The sails were still on it. The boat was just upside down and they couldn't figure out what had happened. And as they examined the interior, they found no sign of it, Michael. The ballast, the water in the boat had already come out, of course. And as they got to the top and as they noticed the keel, the keel is that long part that goes underwater that keeps things level. They noticed the ballast was missing. What's the ballast? Well, for this ship, it was an 8,400 pound lead weight that hung on the bottom of the keel. That no matter matter what kind of wind, no matter what kind of weather, no matter what kind of storm would blow side to side, that boat would come back up because the keel at the bottom had over 8,000 pounds of ballast that would eventually pull the ship back up. And for some reason, the ballast just disconnected. And once the ballast was gone, floating down to the bottom of the sea, which they never found it, the boat had no chance because the boat couldn't keep right, couldn't keep upright if the ballast was gone. And friends, I want to, you know, I I told you that story because I want to tell you one thing. You have a ballast in your life. Sailing, boating, you know, works on this basic principle. You have to have more weight under the water than weight on the top, Right? I mean, that's why there's a keel. That's why there's a ship. That's why there's this large underground ballast, underwater ballast that weighs it down because buoyancy requires that you have more weight underneath the water line than what you have on top or the boat will capsize. And he lost it. And I think a lot of us are struggling with the ballast in our life. And the ballast is your inner world. It's your soul. Sailing is simple. Just keep everything upright. I think the same thing is true today in this world, in this life. The ballast to a sailboat is the soul to you and me. How often do you tend to your soul? How often do you, now I'm not talking about like lying on the beach with a mimosa in your hand. I'm not talking about the Oprah Winfrey kind of soul care. I'm talking about biblical soul care where you're really attending to the inner world through prayer, through time in the word of God, through intimacy with him, intimacy with other people in worship? How often do you attend to the ballast? Because I believe if you're ever gonna make it through this storm that we're in and make it, like successfully make it without crashing your life, you need a strong ballast, probably stronger ballast than you've ever had before. Last summer, I had the amazing opportunity to uh, take the church on a trip to Israel. But then a couple weeks later, my wife and I got back and we took our boys. And so we had planned this. And so we took our family to Israel. That's us uh, in uh, Caesarea uh, Maritima there on the coast at the aqueducts that uh, Herod the Great had put up. And uh, just an amazing time. And one of the reasons my wife and I wanted to take our boys to Israel was to have them experience the Bible. And the land of Israel is a pretty, for the most part, dry and arid place. There are some lush areas up in the mountains. Uh, Up in the mountains, uh, Jerusalem, you probably get around 28, 29 inches of rain in a good year. That's not much, right? Because we get double that here in Hillsboro. Um, But but down in the the desert areas, uh, you get at most like one inch of rain. 
And how are you going to live in one inch of rain? You need a lot more water than that, right? And so throughout the Bible and throughout the story of Scripture and the history of the Bible, uh, you discover that they really cared about wells and waters and streams and things like that. In fact, Herod the Great built this amazing palace called Masada down in the desert. And uh, this, this, if you take a look at it on the upper left part of the screen, there's a parking lot. And then you, you might be able to see the tram that goes up to the top of Masada. But there's also a snake trail. And uh, the snake trail is a pretty interesting thing. Josephus wrote this. He said, there's nothing but destruction in case your feet slip. For on each side, there is a vastly deep chasm and precipice sufficient to quell the courage of everyone by the terror it infuses into the mind. Now, Josephus was a pretty colorful historian, and he elaborated a little bit on that one. But it's a pretty difficult trek. I mean, we left Earth when the, the, you know, the, the, the moon was out, and we got to Masada when the sun came out, and it's really hot already, and we hiked all the way up, and I wasn't allowing my family to take the tram. That would just be cheating. And so we hiked all the way up the snake path, went to the top, and later, after a couple hours of exploring it, getting really hot up there in the, in the wild desert, uh, we, we worked our way back down the snake path and made it back for some ice cream, which was really good. And one of the, the cool things about Masada, and I was explaining to my sons up there, is that you've got to find a way to get water up there because this used to be a fortress for Herod. There used to be living things on the top, plants and grass and trees. There used to be pools of water for Herod and his soldiers to relax up there. Well, how'd you get all that water? Well, the runoff from the mountains, one inch of water, they, they found a way to collect it into cisterns. What's a cistern? It's a picture of two of the cisterns on the side of Masada. If you add all the water uh, capacity up for, I think, seven cisterns, there's 11 million gallons of water possible in those cisterns. It's pretty crazy. And all you need is a whole lot of slaves to carry that water up there. And that's what Herod had was a lot of slaves. And they would fill those cisterns with water. A cistern is an area carved out or cut out of the rock or the mud. And you put water in. Uh, in the desert, you'd put a cistern in the ground and you would fill it up with water. Uh, and a cistern is probably not the best water because it does grow stagnant over time, but it's water nonetheless. And um, if you think about 11 million gallons, I multiplied the size of the auditorium, the width, the length, the height. If we were to fill this auditorium with water, if it was to be like a serious rainy day and there was a big leak, it'd take seven sunrise auditoriums to make 11 million gallons. That's a lot of water Herod had. But the problem with a cistern is it doesn't hold. Water leaks out. Cisterns get cracks in them. And what's worse than water leaking out is impurity leaking into your water and corrupting your water source. In fact, God used this whole idea of a cistern in the Old Testament. And he he says this in Jeremiah. He says, you have built cracked cisterns for yourself that will not satisfy you. But you got to have water. And if you're in the desert, a cistern is going to be a decent one, right? So we left Masada. We worked our way down to the Dead Sea. Masada is right there on the Dead Sea, down in that Transjordan area there. Pretty amazing thing, the Dead Sea. It looks really cool from, you know, from a distance. Everything's kind of salty. In fact, 10 times saltier than normal salt water. And there's so much salt in the water and so many impurities in the water because it's the lowest spot on the planet where water accumulates. And as water evaporates, it leaves everything else there. It's kind of this oily mix of just this weird substance. And um, you actually float on it. You actually can get in the water and float. This is my family here. And they're just showing you just, you're buoyant because of the thickness of the water. 
Now, the boys were really excited about it because we'd explained a lot about it. And about 10 minutes into the Dead Sea, they're like, this is disgusting. We want to get out. <laughs> and we did. Because uh, it's a weird experience. But there's nothing that lives in the Dead Sea. It, it's dead. Fish can't swim in the Dead Sea. You can't have plant life along the shore. It's completely dead. Because all the real living water is gone. It evaporated. Well, we got our showers and piled into the car and just went across the street. Went across the road there, the highway, to a place called Engedi. Engedi is a place that's in the desert, and it's mentioned in Scripture a number of times. And this is one of the ravines that's in Engedi. And Engedi's uh, got a lot of good biblical stories there. David hid from Saul there. Uh, he actually hid in one of the caves, and Saul went in one of the, one of the caves right there in Engedi to relieve himself, and that's a cool story. Um, but... but but, but the reality is, you're going to die in the desert if you don't have water. So we, we walk them up, we park the car, we go through the gate, and we walk up one of those wadis, one of those streams. There's no stream there, there's no water. And we start to talk to our boys about water. We start to talk about psalms and how God likens this relationship we have to him and our soul as like needing water in a dry and weary land, a desert land where there is no water and how we're parched without God and how if we don't care for our soul, we'll dry up and shrivel up and we have have to immerse ourselves in God. Well, how do you do that? Well, we're walking up this dry riverbed and all of a sudden we start to hear water. In fact, all of a sudden you start to see a little bit of water trickle down. You see some greenery. You see some wildlife. And the more you walk in, in fact, we actually walked down into the ravine and we started walking there. The water, it felt amazing. It was icy cold right up to our feet, to our toes, and then to our ankles. And we kept walking and walking and walking up this wadi, up this river stream until it got higher. In fact, here's one of the valleys that you know, we were in and you can see water flowing from the rock. Which is, a, which is a really trippy thing. Maybe you've been to Camp Sherman there in Central Oregon when you've seen the metolius flow out of the, out of the rock. That's what it is. The rock is so porous that water is, is so voluminous under the ground that water just flows through the rock. So many biblical pictures about God bringing water from the rock. It's just right there in front of you. But if you keep going up, if you keep going up and keep going up, the water rises higher and higher to your knee and to your waist. And we finally got to both sides, both, both wadis, uh, David and, and our goat, and we ended up up to this one where there was a waterfall. And we just immersed ourselves under the waterfall. In the desert, the water is flowing. We found this other one and this little pool, and we just soaked in it. It was amazing. You think about it, when it's 110, 120 outside, that feels really good. And if you've been walking in the desert, if you've been dry and weary, living water, which is what that means, fresh flowing water, not stagnant cistern water, not dead, dead sea water, but living water, flowing fresh water will give you life. Now with that in mind, I want to read a scripture and then close. Every year as I read through the Bible, I come to this section and it just, it just blows me away. Maybe you you could close your eyes and picture what I'm going to read to you in Ezekiel 47, 1 to 10. This is speaking about the future. Ezekiel says, In my vision, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. 
There I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar on its south side. The man brought me outside the wall through the north gateway and led me around to the eastern entrance. There I could see water flowing out through the side of the east gateway. Measuring as he went, he took me along the stream for 1,750 feet and then led me across. The water was up to my ankles. He measured off another 1,750 feet and led me across again. This time the water was up to my knees. And another 1,750 feet, it was up to my waist. And then he measured another 1,750 feet and the water was too deep to walk across. It was deep enough to swim in, but too deep to walk through. He asked me, what have you watched? Have you been watching, son of man? Then he led me back along the riverbank. When I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing along both sides of the river. Then he said to me, this river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be streams of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea all the way from Engedi to Enegleum. The shores will be covered with nets drying in the sun. Fish of every kind will fill the Dead Sea just as they fill the Mediterranean. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be food for the leaves for healing. Now, friends, look up. God one day will flood the Dead Sea with fresh water flowing out of his temple. It's amazing if you've been to the Dead Sea. There's no way you can imagine anything alive there. But one day the water flowing from God's temple will so overflow the death of the Dead Sea that all of a sudden fish will be there, swimming there. People will be swimming there. They'll fish there. Life will be there. It will teem with life again. There's a lot of death There's a lot of decay. There's a lot of destruction in our world today. And every year when I read this passage, I'm struck with a simple thought. Is the water flowing out of my soul? Remember Dallas Willard. Is the water flowing out of my soul bringing life to anyone else? Is it turning dead things alive? Not not in my power, but in the power of God. Is the water so flowing out of me that it's pouring out of me to the point where wherever I go where there's death and decay in relationships, death and decay in hopes and dreams, is the water flowing out of me so strong that it takes what is dead and flushes that out to life? If we're ever going to be an impact into our world, friends, it's not going to be with our own abilities. It's not going to be with our own devices. It's only going to be with God flowing out of us so much so that it fills up the valley of death and overflows the Dead Sea to the point where what was once dead teems with life again because of what Jesus has done. I've been at Sunrise, gosh, 26 years, and I've seen and heard and experienced so many stories of what was once dead now teeming with life because God can take the dead things and bring them back to life. That might be you today, or probably more likely, it might be the opportunity that you have 
through the overflowing of your own soul that's healthy and just thriving with God, spilling over into every environment, every conversation, every encounter this week, to the end of this COVID season, to the end of the struggles with racism, to the end of the struggles with politics, to the end of the struggles, to the end of this world, when Jesus shows up again, that life could be so flowing from you that it takes what's dead and washes it away because of Jesus. That's my prayer for sunrise. That's my prayer for you. May this week, in the middle of such a crazy week, may we so overflow with God's love from our own soul that lives are changed. Let's pray. God, it's, it's very clear. You've spoken to us through your son, Jesus Christ, that we can have life in abundance and overflowing to the full. May that be true for us this week and may that life flow to others. We pray in your name.